The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Thinking about the Lord Jesus being the one who is the lover of our souls. And he's the one who came uh, to bring salvation and healing. And that's that's really who we're going to look at this morning. Paul in, in Galatians, we're in chapter 4. And Paul has been arguing throughout the book of Galatians for the sufficiency of Christ. He's been arguing for the sufficiency of the gospel. And... That Christ, we don't need to get beyond Christ and the gospel. That, that he is the sum and substance of the Christian life. That just as we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, so we are sanctified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we work out our salvation not in order to earn God's favor, somehow to uh, make God happy with us, The Father is already happy with us because of what Christ has done. Christ did what we never could do. He accomplished what we could never accomplish. As we sang so many of those songs this morning, what we brought to the deal was our sin and our brokenness. That's what we brought. And what Christ gave us was his righteousness and his obedience and his faithfulness. And this great transaction happened. We believed in the gospel and we were given new life and a new identity and a new standing. And, and Paul goes into great detail in Galatians to talk about this doctrine of justification. That the Father looks at us and he declares us righteous. Not because of what we've done, but because of what Christ did. Our righteousness is in him. And it is a full justification. It's not partial. It's not that, oh, he justified you and declared you righteous from all the sins you committed before you became a Christian. But now all these sins, while you're a Christian, somehow you're on your own. That's not what he did. It was a full justification. All sins, past, present, future, were nailed to the cross. They were like a handwriting of requirements, Colossians 2 says, that were against us. And Christ removed them, having taken them out of the way, having nailed them to the cross. And we don't bear them anymore. It also is not just a full justification, it is a free justification. It's given to us freely in Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, we don't have to earn this justification. We don't got to get ourselves cleaned up. Have you ever believed that lie? I've heard it so many times where people say, you know, I would come to church, but I just got to get myself cleaned up before I come. I'm broken and I'm a mess and and I got to clean myself up before I come into the presence of God. No, that's a lie from the devil. He doesn't ever want you to come. You don't get yourself cleaned up. You come as you are broken and beat up in a wreck and Christ makes you whole. And Christ heals you and he delivers you. And he changes you and he doesn't leave you the same. That is good news. And that's the hope we have this morning in this book. This is what Paul's been arguing about. In fact, he's going he's to argue by using an illustration. He's going to use an allegory, a metaphor out of the Old Testament. And he calls it an allegory of Hagar and Sarah, a tale of two women. 
And he illustrates this by this allegorical interpretation of these events that really happened. And he takes Sarah as a picture of free grace that's summed up in Abraham's faith. And he takes Hagar as a picture of slavery and bondage, which is summed up in trying to earn God's favor by your good works. And so, first question that arises is, why would Paul choose this picture out of all of the Old Testament pictures? Why would he choose this? And some commentators have said probably it's because the opponents, the Judaizers who were in the church of Galatia, they had brought up this illustration of Hagar and Sarah, but instead of appealing to Sarah as an example of grace... They appeal to Sarah as an example of we're of the bloodline of Abraham, therefore we're the better people. And so if you want to really be holy, be like us. And this isn't a new argument. This is what Jesus came across in his ministry. Do you remember that? When he's talking to the Pharisees and they accuse him of being illegitimate. We know who our father is. Abraham, but you don't even have a father. You were born out of wedlock. That was the accusation. Of course, Jesus responds, don't think just because you have Abraham as your father that God the Father is happy with you. In fact, he says the axe is at the root of the tree, ready to chop the tree down. And so I assume, like these commentators have suggested, is that Hagar and Sarah and this this story from Genesis 16 and all the way through 21 that that what was going on is they were using that to say, hey, you Gentiles, you're like Hagar. And if you want to receive the blessing of God, you need to become like us Jewish people who are descendants of Sarah. And so you need to be circumcised. Chapter 5 even, Paul alludes to that, that he says in in chapter 5, he doesn't allude to it, he says it, uh, chapter 5, verse 2. Look, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. So they were pressing in on these Gentile Christians to even be circumcised like the Jewish people, to fall under this old covenant. And so Paul uses this picture. One commentator, um, uh, George, uh, Oh man, his name went right out of my head. Anyway, New American Commentary Series. I see the book. I can't think of the author at the moment. The entire analogy of of Hagar and Sarah involves five sets of twos in this passage. Two mothers, two sons, two covenants, two mountains. Mount Sinai versus Mount Zion, the latter being understood but not expressed, and two cities, the present Jerusalem and the heavenly one. The two mothers, Hagar and Sarah, stand for two covenants, one derived from Mount Sinai and capable of bearing children, destined only to be slaves. And the other, the covenant of grace, sealed in the blood of Christ, the only foundation for real freedom and release from sin and death. I think that's a really good help for us as we look at this passage. So let's read it together, and then we'll, we'll look at it. Chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law... Do you not listen to the law? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. 
Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, but Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it's written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. What does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So this is the same argument we've been hearing these past few weeks, that we need to stand firm in Christ. I mean, the conclusion is chapter 5, verse 1. It's the end of that paragraph. It concludes that section. And, and he says, Christ has set us free. His work at the cross accomplished our freedom. And the reason he went to the cross was in order to set us free. For freedom, Christ has set you free. For the purpose of freedom. He didn't set you free to bring you into this new covenant so you would be a slave again. This is incredibly important because so many people live their Christian lives in the fear of a slave. They think of God the Father in heaven as a harsh taskmaster who's ready to come down on them at any moment. And his thumb is right over them and he's just going to smash them like a bug. Like happened over here while we were singing. Have you saw that? That's not our Father in heaven. He so loved the world, he gave his son so that you would be in right relationship with him and that you'd be adopted into his family. Paul had just talked about that in chapter 4. And he wants you to draw near to him with the family affections of him as father. And the spirit is poured out into our lives so that we cry out what? Abba, Father. Paul says, for freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore. Be steadfast. And don't submit to a yoke of slavery again. And with social media... There is all sorts of forms of Christian slavery out there for you to fall under. I think of you mothers especially. There's so many yokes of slavery that you'll be a really good Christian mother if you just feed your kids the right food. If you school them the right way. If you expose them to the right things and not expose them to the wrong things. And here in California, it's all sorts of things, right? I mean, we can add all, you know, essential oils and non-GMOs and you name it. And there's nothing wrong with those things, of course. And it's good to be wise and to be discerning. But when you believe that that is the status of your position before God, based upon how well you do or do not follow those things or clip coupons or do whatever, then you fall into a yoke of slavery, thinking that your acceptance to the Father in heaven is based upon how much money you save at the grocery store because you've brought your own bags. I mean, I'm joking, but I'm not. I want you to know that. I am making light of it a little bit. I'm mocking it a little bit. Because that's the reality of it. Do you really believe that your status before the God in heaven is based upon how good a diet you give your children? No, it's not. It's based upon the finished work of Christ. 
Doesn't mean we swing to the other end and we put Pepsi in baby bottles, right? I mean, this is the kind of thing that Paul is dealing with. You have a culture that was tied to an old covenant, Judaism. And these Judaizers had brought their culture and their old covenant laws into the Galatian Gentile churches and said, if you want to be accepted and loved by God the Father, you need to do what we say. You need to honor festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, and your children need to be circumcised. Paul says, the law never could make anybody righteous. It was never intended to do that. You're trying to use the law as a tool that it was never intended to accomplish. So I'm trying to pound nails with a wrench. It doesn't work very well. And so he says, do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Keep that last, that chapter 5 verse 1 in mind as, as we go throughout here. So first he says there's a slave woman and a free woman, verses 21 to 23. There's the status of these two mothers, he says, One mother is is a slave. Verse 22, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. And, And it's interesting, he starts in verse 21 and he says, hey, you who want to be under the law, you who desire to be under the law, do you really know what you're desiring is what he's saying? Do you really understand what you're asking for? In fact, he had said, chapter 3, verse 23, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. He says, you want to go back under imprisonment? That was a, the law was a jailer until Christ came. We were held captive until Christ came. Why would you want to go back under that? Chapter 4, verse 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Christ was born under the law, and he fulfilled the law perfectly and did what the first Adam couldn't do. He accomplished, and in doing so, chapter 4, verse 5, he redeemed those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we're no longer under the law of Moses, we're now under the law of Christ. That's what he's going to get into in chapter 5. And then he he says in verse 22, if you insist on being under the law, you take pride in your bloodline back to Abraham. Remember something about Abraham. This is what Paul's saying. Remember he had two sons. Only one was given a promise. So there's the possibility you could be a son of Abraham but not receive the promise. The other didn't share in the inheritance. So he says, don't just say I'm a son of Abraham and say that's good. And so he gives the story of Hagar and Ishmael. Hagar, back in Genesis 16, you can turn back there with me. Dave read it for us this morning, and you might have been wondering why I had him read that, but now it maybe makes a little more sense. But in chapter 16, after Ishmael is born, Hagar begins to take pride in a bad way in her son. So much so that in verse 4, she looks with contempt on Sarah, her mistress. She basically says, I'm a better wife than you. You never gave your husband a child. And I did. And Ishmael, 
In chapter 17, verse 18, was Abraham's pride and joy at that time. Abraham says to God in chapter 17, verse 18, Oh, that Ishmael would live before you. God, why don't you just make him the son of promise, the one you promised me? Let him live before you. And God says no. And years later, God gives a promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have, they would have a son. And it would come from Sarah in chapter 17. And Sarah ends up in chapter 21 calling him Isaac. And remember what Isaac means? It means laughter. And Sarah laughed when she heard the news because she was past childbearing years. And the laugh was in disbelief and scorn. And God was so gracious not to take her unbelief and scorn and refuse to give his promise. Instead, he gives her a child and then she laughs again with joy when he's born. And I bet there was a whole lot of laughter in that house. And so Isaac is named Laughter. And because of this, we already see that Sarah had kicked out Hagar because she was despised, but God told Hagar, go back and live with them, and so she does. But then in chapter 21, Ishmael and Hagar are no longer favored, and Ishmael is no longer the heir. And so in chapter 21, verse 9 and following, Sarah tells Abraham to cast out Ishmael. And it's at Isaac's weaning party. They threw a party when he was no longer breastfed, when he began to eat on his own. They had a party for him. And at the party, evidently, Ishmael, who was older, mistreated Isaac, treated him badly, as older brothers are apt to do. And Paul picks up on this in, in, the, in the story, in the uh, analogy that he uses in Galatians 5, and he, he actually speaks to this. And, and we see in Genesis 21, 11, that initially Abraham doesn't want to cast out Ishmael. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. But here in Genesis 21, God tells Abraham, go ahead and, and kick her out. Do what Sarah wants. I'm, don't worry about him. I'm going to make him a great nation. But he's not the child of promise. See, and that's the big issue in Genesis. Genesis 3, God had promised Eve there would be a descendant who would come and restore everything that was lost. And then God told Abraham that descendant would come through him. And God narrows it down and says, it's not through Ishmael, but it's through Isaac. And he does the same thing a generation later when he says, it's not through Esau, it's through Jacob. And then he does it with Jacob's descendants and says, it's through Judah. And then he goes to the house of Judah and he says to David in 1 Chronicles 17, it's one of your descendants that's going to sit on the throne forever. And I'm going to make him a great house and I'm going to make his name great. Of course, David responds and says, you've spoken of my house for a long time to come. I would say forever is a long time to come. And then we know, born in Bethlehem, in that manger, to a descendant of David, Mary, is the birth of Jesus, the promised one. And this is Paul's whole point. So turn back to Galatians 4. 
He says in, in, in verses 21 to 23, there are these two women, Hagar and Sarah. And then in verse 24, he says, I'm going to interpret this for you allegorically. And by allegory, Paul was familiar with, in his day and age, uh, Philo, the Greek philosopher, had popularized a form of allegory. And, and, and our word allegory actually comes from the Greek word that's used in this text, allegoreo. I mean, it sounds like allegory. You'd get an A plus in a, in a Greek vocabulary test if you, uh, it's kind of like angel in angelos makes, it's easy. I can do Greek that way. But Paul didn't mean allegory in the Greek sense of like a Philo, the philosopher, where it's completely divorced from reality. Uh, although some New Testament scholars began to do that, for example, in, in, the, in the 300s or 200s by the time of Origen in the third century, he actually had interpreted the Exodus account allegorically completely divorced from any reality. I'll give you a little example of what he did. Abraham knew that he prefigured the type of things to come. This is origin. He knew Christ would be born of his seed to be offered as a true victim for the whole world in the resurrection of the dead. And he arrived at the place to which the Lord had directed him on the third day. This is when he was supposed to offer up Isaac. Genesis 22.4. And, and everything so far sounds great. It's where he starts getting into the third day here. He said the third day is always a fit one for mysteries. When the people went forth from Egypt, they offered sacrifice to God on the third day. The Lord's resurrection is on the third day. Pharaoh did not allow the children of Israel to go forward to the place of signs and wished to prevent them advancing till they could enjoy the mysteries of the third day. I don't know if that's true or not, but hear what the prophet says. The Lord will revive us after two days, and on the third day he'll raise us up and we shall live in his sight. So he says, this is what the allegory is. The first day is the Lord's passion. The second is the descent into hell, and the third is the resurrection. That's why on the third day God will go before them by a pillar of cloud and by a pillar, by night a pillar of fire. And you say, no, that's not why. That's divorce from reality. That's Greek allegory. What Paul was using, rather than allegory, he was using what, what we would distinguish today in Christian academics as typology. So we actually use a different word, typology, a narrative in the Old Testament that's interpreted in terms of the New Covenant. Or to put it another way, an aspect of the New Covenant that's pre- presented in terms of an Old Testament narrative. And what Paul is contrasting is legal bondage and spiritual freedom. Old Covenant to New Covenant. And so he takes these two women and he says there's two covenants. There's the covenant of Moses and there's the new covenant that's under Christ. In fact, turn over to 2 Corinthians 3. I think this is the best commentary on this in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he contrasts two ministries, two covenants. And he says the ministry of death, this old covenant, it's like a ministry of death, and it was carved in stone. Where do we see that? Mount Sinai in the Ten Commandments. It came with such a glory that the Israelites couldn't look on Moses' face. Moses had to put a veil on his face because the glory of God was reflected in his face. But we know that that faded after a time. 
And it was being brought to an end. But Paul then says, will not the ministry of the Spirit, the new covenant, have even more glory? In other words, it will never end. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. So he calls the old covenant the ministry of condemnation. Paul understood that law was never intended to save or bring righteousness. All it was intended to do was condemn. It had a ministry of condemnation. Hopefully none of you have that ministry in church, right? What's your ministry? I have a ministry of condemnation. No. He says, this is the old covenant. It had a ministry of condemnation, but the new covenant, what does it have? It has a ministry of righteousness. And it far exceeds the old in glory. Verse 10, indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. He's not saying that the law is not good or righteous or just. He's just saying it served its intended purpose and now it's come to an end and now we have Christ and he's permanent and the ministry of the Spirit is a ministry of righteousness and it is more glorious. In fact, it is so much more glorious that it seems like the old one doesn't have any glory at all. Verse 12, what's the importance of this? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Well, what is this boldness In what regard? We're not like Moses, verse 13, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. There's not a veil and a partition and a barrier between us and God, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only in Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But what do we have? When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We have freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You want me to tell you what we have that's so much better, Paul says? We don't have this process of veils and barriers to get to the glory of God. We don't have a tabernacle with a holy of holies where only the high priest can go in. We don't have any of that. Now we have boldness because we have freedom to go into the very presence of God and see the glory of Christ and see the Lord with an unveiled face. And when we see him, we become like him. And we're transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. And it's because of the Spirit's ministry indwelling us, regenerating us, sanctifying us, making us like Christ. Paul says it is so much more glorious. Why would you go back to the old? Why? Why? Well, I know why. I mean, I I know in my own flesh why. Because it's so much easier to just say, give me a list. Give me a checklist and I can get it done at the beginning of my day and then I can go on with my own life and do my own thing. But that treats our status in Christ and our position with the Father as merely a list of duties rather than a relationship. And I fear that, especially you kids growing up in the church, I fear that you would misunderstand Christianity to be a list of do's and don'ts. And you would see sin as just simply breaking the rules. It's not. Sin is offending a person. You've offended the Lord of glory. 
You've offended a person and you've alienated yourself from that person. Have you ever had that happen in relationships? Where you've blown it so bad you've alienated the relationship and you don't know how it's going to be restored? And when it's, when it's someone near and dear to you, your family or your closest friends, it hurts even worse. That's what's happened because of sin. And the one who's brought us near to the Father is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is our mediator. He is our go-between. He is our advocate. He is our helper. He is our savior and our deliverer. He is our friend and he's our comforter. And he's the one who brings us to God. And he cleans us up by giving us his robe of righteousness. And now we have boldness to appear in the very throne room of God with Christ as our advocate. And we can ask the Father anything we want and he hears us. And we can draw near to him because he's drawn near to us and his son. And so Paul contrasts legal bondage and spiritual freedom. Paul's meaning is clear. If you want liberation through the Mosaic law, you are doomed to disappointment. It's never going to happen. And so then he goes back in Galatians 4, verses 25 to 27, to contrast Jerusalem below and Jerusalem above, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion by implication. And he says in verse 25, the people of the law who are the offspring of the slave woman, the children of the free woman are those who embrace the gospel of justification by faith, beginning with the Jews, of course, and rapidly including the Gentiles. They're like those from Galatia. This is why Paul said, foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Christ was publicly portrayed before your eyes is crucified, and who has bewitched you? Who has entranced you? Who has put a spell on you? And so here you have Hagar. She has a son, Ishmael, who's the son of slavery. His birth is according to the flesh. He's a picture of the old covenant, a picture of Mount Sinai, a picture even of present Jerusalem, who is barren. And you have Sarah, in contrast, who has Isaac, the son of freedom, who is born through the promise, who is born of the Spirit, according to Paul here in Galatians, who is a picture of the new covenant that comes from Mount Zion above, the heavenly Jerusalem, the one in which Jerusalem below was patterned, right? The temple in Jerusalem was patterned, Hebrews tells us, after the heavenly temple. This idea, in fact, of two Jerusalems, lower and upper, earthly and heavenly, it's not unique to Paul. Turn to Hebrews 12. The author of Hebrews in verse 22, Hebrews 12, talks about that. Actually, begin in verse 18. He contrasts these two mountains, these two Jerusalems. You've not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them for they could not endure the order that was given even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's Mount Sinai, that's Exodus. He said, you haven't come to that. Instead, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is where you've come, brothers and sisters. You've come to Christ. You've come to the new covenant. You've come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've not come to fear. You've come to a party, he said. Hey, those angels, they're in festal gathering. That means a party. That's old words for a party. Book of Revelation speaks of this also. Revelation 3, verse 12. The one who conquers, Jesus says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This is your standing in Christ. You're a part of the new covenant. You're a part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven. And we see it pictured at the end of Revelation chapter 21. He says, this is where you are in Christ. Paul says in Ephesians, you've been seated in chapter 2 in the heavenlies in Christ, far above all principalities and powers and rulers and authorities. You've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ. You're going to inherit everything with Christ. Why in the world would you go back to bondage? Why would you do it? You see, his, his frustration and concern with them is a concern over the gospel. But it's a loving concern. I hope you see this. It's not simply that he wants to be uh, right or he wants them to only get their teaching from him. No, he loves them and cares about them. He's pleading with them and saying, why would you go back to bondage? Well, because it's scary to live in freedom, isn't it? You feel like if you live in freedom, you're going to go to the other extreme and you're just going to sin that grace would abound. That's what Paul anticipated the conclusion was going to be in Romans. He says, he says all of these realities in Romans that we've been justified and declared righteous in Christ and that it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he anticipates the conclusion. What shall we say to these things? Should we sin that grace would abound? I mean, if we want to be logical, and if we want Christ to be even more sufficient, and his grace to even be more glorious, well, we ought to sin more. Paul says, may it never be. Ah. Survey says, top ten answers on the board. Ah. Not one of those. He says, how can you who died to sin live in it any longer? You've been set free from the law of sin and bondage, the law of sin and death in Christ. And now you're to offer your bodies as instruments of righteousness to the Father to be used for his purposes and his glory. In fact, his conclusion when he gets to Romans 12 is he says, therefore, in light of all the mercies of God in Christ that you've received, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable 
This is your reasonable service. It's your spiritual act of worship. This is you as a priesthood of believers now with a spiritual act of worship. Your reasonable service is to serve not in the old covenant temple, but in the new covenant temple, of which, by the way, you are. And so back to Galatians 4. Paul, in verse 27, quotes Isaiah 54 about Jerusalem. And basically what he says with this quote is that the new Jerusalem has more children than the old Jerusalem ever had. The great reversal that Isaiah prophesied from barrenness to fruitfulness, from despair to joy in verse 27, from desolation to blessing, it can only be accomplished by the unilateral work and intervention of God himself. And he did it when he sent his son to the cross. And Paul's pointing to the sovereign purposes and infinite love of the Father that is the foundation of our justification and our freedom and our hope. And then he concludes this illustration, this analogy with Isaac and Ishmael. Verse 28 of Galatians 4. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise but just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit so also it is now but what does scripture say cast out the slave woman and her son for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman he he stresses the present reality of the salvation they receive Verse 28, you Gentiles, even though you're Gentiles and not Jewish, you who are in Christ, you've actually received the blessing of Abraham, the promise that Isaac was given. In fact, chapter 3, verse 14, he had already said this. Chapter 3, verse 14, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You've received this. Paul stresses You by faith already are like Isaac and not Ishmael. Already. Your connection to Abraham is not physical, it's spiritual. And going back under the old law will never make it a physical connection. And it's in danger of proving that you never had a spiritual connection. Your merit contributes nothing to your salvation, which is God's free gift according to promise. And so in verse 29, there's a contrast according to the flesh and according to the spirit. You see those two phrases? He says, the one who was born according to the flesh persecuted the one born according to the spirit. And then he says, so it is now. I think that's an allusion to the current situation. These Judaizers are coming in and persecuting you by trying to force you to come under their teaching. Verse 30 is a quote of Genesis 21.10 that I mentioned when God told Abraham, go ahead and, and cast out Ishmael. I'll take care of him, but he is not the son of promise. And I think what Paul's getting at by quoting this is saying, legal bondage and freedom cannot coexist. The inheritance promised to Abraham belongs to the children of promise. It does not belong to those who are still under law. And then in verse 31... It provides the answer to the question he's been asking all along in chapters 3 and 4. Who are the true members of the family of Abraham? Somehow the Galatians had been bewitched and confused about their own spiritual identity. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Even though the Spirit had been abundantly poured out on them when they were first converted to Christ. And so in chapter 3, verses 6 to 9, he points the Galatians back to Abraham, who was declared righteous before God, not by works, but by faith alone. 
And he says, that's how you were declared righteous. Verses 10 to 25 of chapter 3, he says the primary purpose and function of the law is not to make you righteous, it's to condemn you, shut you up under sin. It was a, a, a jailer until Christ came. And Paul in verses 12 to 20 says that grace is the only basis of your salvation and you need to become like Paul. He tells the Galatians, become like me who has relied upon Christ by grace alone through faith alone. And finally, he develops this analogy of Hagar and Sarah. And they were already familiar probably because of these false teachers. And he says, listen, Sarah, Isaac, the new covenant, Mount Zion, Jerusalem above, it is far more glorious and far greater, far more freedom, far more hope than Hagar, Ishmael, the old covenant, Mount Sinai, Jerusalem that now is. Why would you go back to bondage? And so he concludes chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. With the language of freedom and slavery still ringing in their ears as they hear that story of Hagar and Sarah, they're told by Paul, this is a translation by Phillips, plant your feet firmly therefore within the freedom Christ has won for us and do not let yourselves be caught again in the shackles of slavery. Standing fast in freedom will safeguard them from submitting to legal bondage. Outside of Jesus Christ, Paul says, all human existence can be characterized as bondage. It's why the psychology industry is booming. There are so many disorders. There are so many afflictions, so many addictions. What is addiction but slavery and bondage? So many problems. And very often... The cure outside of Christ is simply to rearrange the furniture. I used to be a drunk and addicted to alcohol, but now I'm no longer addicted to alcohol. Now I'm, I'm really into exercise, and I'm so proud of the fact that I'm not a drunk anymore. And so really now I'm enslaved to pride and bondage, and now I've made my new addiction my body and my image and my look and the fact that I've defeated this other addiction. But what happens when you get old? That will fail because it's not a sufficient savior. It's not able to deliver. This is the glorious good news about Christ. You see, the bondage says, the the world system says, the problem with you is, is the circumstances outside of you that have pressed in on you, whether it's your childhood, your life, your circumstances, whatever it is. And the solution lies within you. You just need to believe enough. You need to do enough. You need to be positive enough. You need to be strong enough, you need to be healthy enough, you need to be vigorous enough, smart enough, whatever it is, the solution's in you, the problem's outside of you. The gospel says, no, the problem's in you. You're a sinner by nature and by choice. And you've rebelled against a holy God, and the solution can never come from within you. It's only outside of you in Christ. But when you embrace Christ by faith and submit to him and take him to be your Lord and Savior, you are delivered and saved and set free. And that is good news. And those addictions and those bondages, those chains are broken in Christ. Broken. You're a new person. You're a new creature. 
If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. It doesn't mean we won't have struggles and temptations and failures, but in Christ, there is progress towards holiness. There is growth towards Christ's likeness because you are not left alone and abandoned. You've been given the Spirit of God in the new covenant, indwelling you and changing you and making you like Christ. So Paul says, stand firm. Don't submit again. Outside of Christ, there's bondage. Bondage to the law, bondage to the elementary principles dominating the world, bondage to sin, bondage to the flesh, bondage to the devil. And God sent his son to shatter the dominion of these slaveholders. God has sent his spirit into the hearts of, of you and I believers, Christians, to awaken us to new life and freedom in Christ. For freedom Christ has set us free. And we're to stand fast and become what we already are in Christ. Well, freedom finds its true expression. Freedom doesn't mean I can do whatever I want. That's not what Paul means by freedom here. It's not some sort of theological privatism that's so popular. I'm free to believe anything I choose. doesn't matter what the Bible says. It's what it means to me. You ever had somebody uh, talk to you? It's one of the most frustrating conversations at the coffee shop. Well, what the Bible means to me is, I don't care what it means to you. What does it say? Freedom doesn't find itself in theological privatism. Well, I don't, you know, uh, what, what it means to me is, I, I, do not forsake the assembling. That doesn't mean I'm supposed to go to church. You know, me and my relationship with Jesus is my personal private thing. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches we're saved to be in community. In a local gathering of Christians who are on mission to share the gospel, the good news that Christ is king and he's renewing his kingdom and the kingdom of God has come. It doesn't also mean some sort of spiritual narcissism. I'm free to be myself no matter what. Christ has set me free and I can do whatever I want. But rather, what this freedom is, is freedom to love and serve one another in the context of the body of Christ. Freedom in Christ gives us the power and ability to do as we ought to do. That's the good news. We become what we already are. We now have the power and ability to obey God, not in order to earn his favor, but we now have the power and ability to obey him because he's already given us his favor in Christ and poured out his spirit. We have freedom to become like Christ and draw near to the Father and walk according to the Spirit and not according to the flesh. And that's why in chapter 5 he says, hey, I want you to know something, verse 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails you anything but faith working in love. And when he says faith working in love, he means that because you are in Christ and you have the Spirit indwelling you, your faith will work itself out in loving God and loving others. And then he says in verse 13 of chapter 5, You, my brethren, brothers and sisters, you were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. So what does he mean by freedom here? For freedom Christ has set you free. You are now free to live and to love and to serve God and others. And that's our walking orders today, isn't it? It's a very simple application today. Stand fast in the freedom Christ has won for you and use that freedom to love others and serve others and to love God and to serve God. 
and start this afternoon. Start as soon as we sing and pray. Actually, start in the midst of our singing because you know what we're supposed to do with our singing? We're supposed to encourage one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Colossians says, what we do when we sing is we let the word concerning Christ, this word, this gospel message about who Christ is and what he's done, dwell in our hearts richly. And as a result, when we sing, we actually encourage one another to believe the same things that are true. We preach the gospel to one another in our singing, in our praying, in our serving, in our living, and that's what we ought to be doing. So that's what I urge you to do today. Don't use your freedom as a reason to indulge sinful delights, verse 13 of chapter 5. Instead, through love, serve one another. Father, thank you for your word in this time. And what a remarkable transformation would happen in our culture if we understood this and believed this and lived this out day in and day out. We know that we're helpless to produce revival, Father, but we ask that you would, you would use our church. You would start with us and you would send revival by your spirit into our community, into our loved ones, into our neighbors, and even into our enemies, Father. I ask that you would do this for your son's sake and for his glory. In Jesus' name. to this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.